0: On this World Communion Sunday, uh, I'll be talking about an issue that affects people of every nation, language, and creed, an issue that affects the whole world. Indeed, the issue is the world itself, how we grapple with the anxiety that comes from knowing that our planet is changing probably faster than it ever has before. Climate patterns that normally take millions of years to develop are shifting before our eyes. Geologic time scales reduced to a few decades. Once a lifetime weather events happening every week. Naturally, this takes a toll on our collective mental health. The eco-anxiety is real. This text from the Book of Lamentations comes from a time Nearly 600 years before Jesus was born, when the city of Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonian Empire, her citizens dragged back to Babylon as slaves or exiled to the far reaches of the ancient Levant. This lament is written by someone who is still there, living amidst the smoking ruins of what was once a prosperous and holy city. This person, the prophet Jeremiah, according to some traditions, watched the city fall, saw the horror, experienced the terror. He's living the story in real time, much as we are. And he doesn't know how it ends either. On this World Communion Sunday, we gather in spirit with Christ and with Christians of all nations and ethnicities, who share this planet that we call home. We break bread, knowing that some have none, and we celebrate this harvest, hoping that there will always be another. And now, hear this scripture in the original Hebrew from Kathy Christoph. <laughs> I'm just messing with you.
1: <clears throat> oh boy, good morning. We're reading this morning from Lamentations, chapter five, one through seven, and 19 through 22. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to aliens. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink The wood we get must be bought. With a yoke on our necks, we are hard driven. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have made a pact with Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned, they are no more, and we bear their inequities. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us these many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen.
0: Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. I let it wash over me easily. If I happen to catch the scent of a certain industrial cleaner, I find myself back in my kindergarten cafeteria. When the light takes on a certain hue at sunset, I'm back in my grandmother's backyard, running and playing while the grown-ups have their boring conversations at the kitchen table inside. If the right song comes on the radio, wrapped around your finger from the police always seems to do the trick for some reason, I'm back in the back seat of my mother's car driving through my hometown, drifting down streets whose names I've long since forgotten. I was born in the summer of 1980, one of the greatest decades, I believe, in all of history. <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that things were perfect back then. The AIDS epidemic and the lingering tensions of the Cold War were serious problems, to say nothing of unexplored racism, sexism, and homophobia that people simply didn't talk about much, leaving folks on the margins to stay there and suffer quietly. If I'm being honest, it might not be that the 80s were so wonderful. It may just be they were wonderful for me because I was just a kid, blissfully ignorant of the world's troubles. And I get the feeling that a lot of folks were less anxious before the advent of social media and the 24-hour news cycle, I heard a song recently by a guy around my age that talks about being jealous of his own father for being, in his words, an oblivious white guy in the 80s. If I could be anyone dead or alive, he sings, I would want to be my dad in 1985. I can remember lazy Saturday afternoons in my living room playing with my action figures on the floor while my father sat on the couch and watched movies on television, occasionally adjusting the rabbit ears for better reception. My dad always loved science fiction, and he seemed to lean towards the dystopian, apocalyptic stuff in particular. The Road Warrior, Planet of the Apes, Escape from New York, that sort of thing. I never paid much attention to what was happening on the screen, But I can remember catching glimpses of Mel Gibson driving his battered 1973 Ford Falcon through the burning wasteland, and Kurt Russell trying to rescue the president from roving gangs in the burnt-out husk of New York City. When I was six years old, my dad took my brother and I to see Star Trek IV in the theater. Star Trek has always been a beacon of optimism. Really, a universe in which poverty and pollution and war, among humans at least, have been eradicated. And humankind has spread out amongst the stars where they live long and prosper. Star Trek IV was no different in its relatively rosy outlook of the future. But it revolved around a plot to travel back in time to the 1980s to save the whales from extinction. Save the whales. I heard that a lot when I was growing up. Greenpeace ran this massive campaign back then uh, as the whales were being hunted to extinction. Seeing this movie was the first time in my long journey of slowly growing awareness that I was directly confronted with the fragility of our ecosystem. And it wasn't long after that that I noticed people were talking about the depleting ozone layer, an issue that seems almost quaint by today's standards. Captain Planet and the Planeteers, a kids show about an environmentally friendly superhero worked its way into my rotation of Saturday morning cartoons. Captain Planet taught kids to recycle and to pick up trash and to use less hairspray. That was probably a good idea, regardless of its impact on the ozone. Still, whatever concerns I had about the environment were distant. I was naive back then. I wish I still was. I grew up in Meriden, Connecticut, just as my mother did before me. Meriden was a booming factory town in the first half of the 20th century, renowned for its production of silver. In its heyday, folks called it Silver City, an engine of industry and economic growth. During the Second World War, the factories were repurposed for military use. Instead of spoons and jewelry, the silver was used to make coils and electromagnets for enriching uranium. My mother was born there in 1956, amid the prosperity of the post-war era. But by the time I was born, the factories had long since closed And the city had suffered a relentless decline, visible in the boarded-up storefronts downtown and the peeling paints of old houses like ours. My mother, I imagine, must have experienced a kind of solostalgia. You see, while nostalgia is a longing for times and places long gone, solostalgia is the experience of a changing environment. It's the experience of watching the home you know change and collapse in real time. It's a kind of grieving, not for what once was, but for what still is, and won't be much longer. I have to imagine as the corner store where my mom bought penny candies as a girl went out of business, as she noticed the slow but steady uptick in crime. As she watched the church we attended fall on hard times, that she felt a certain degree of sadness. Reminds me of another song that I'm fond of. No town more barren than our town, it goes. No haven safer than the one they tore down. And It's the same feeling echoed throughout the Book of Lamentations, this poignant outpouring of grief by someone who is still living in the wreckage of the place they once called home. Jeremiah looks upon familiar streets, once full of people, now littered with rubble. He walks in the marketplace, but he can no longer find the things he needs, water, firewood, bread, for any kind of reasonable price, if he can get them at all. He gazes out his window, the scene bleaker than he's accustomed to, you see, nostalgia is bittersweet, but solastalgia is harder. Whereas the former longs for what has already passed, the latter comes with uncertainty about how things will unfold, how they will end, and the inescapable anxiety that they will not end well. It's a feeling, I think, that we all are growing increasingly familiar with as we look at the world around us. Record-breaking heat waves, scorching air, melting ice, extreme weather, wildfires, flash floods, flash droughts, dying rivers, withered crops, burning oceans. Like my mother, like Jeremiah, we are watching the place we call home fall apart in real time. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sad and I'm worried. I can't shake the feeling that those movies my dad watched on those Saturday afternoons are, in a sense, coming true. The themes, at least, social disorder, resource depletion, environmental collapse, seem prescient. And I find myself repeating the same sentiments as Jeremiah here in my prayers. Renew us, Lord, as of old. But deep down, I know there's no going back to the naivete of childhood. Once you know, well, you know. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You just have to see it through, whatever that means, whatever that takes. As that same song I just quoted also goes, No love greater than to lay your life down for a friend. No sweeter pleasure than to see the credits clear through to the end. You're probably thinking at this point that I'd find some more cheerful music to listen to. But the music doesn't make me anxious, it just gives voice to the anxiety that's already there. I suppose that worry started 17 years ago when I saw another film. It wasn't an over-the-top sci-fi adventure with rugged heroes and leather pants, the sort of thing I'd watch with my dad. It was just a notoriously boring guy on a stage with a PowerPoint presentation. Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, was hardly gripping cinema. And yet the subject matter was fascinating. I'd heard about the greenhouse effect before in passing, but never really understood it. I didn't realize that our carbon emissions were making the planet hotter and that the problem was only getting worse. An inconvenient truth, indeed. Of course, plenty of people did know, but it wasn't really common knowledge. All the way back in 1896, a Swedish scientist named Svante Arrhenius arrived at the same conclusion. In 1977, Exxon commissioned a scientific study that modeled our current predicament with stunning accuracy. But rather than do anything productive with this information, they hired the same researchers and PR firms that the tobacco companies used in the 50s to downplay the threat and shift blame onto individual consumers. And it worked. A lot of folks believed for a while that recycling our plastic and using paper straws was gonna be enough to stem the tide. But even then, I wasn't convinced that it would be enough. I feared that our rampant consumption and political inertia would thwart any serious attempts at systemic change. It wasn't until a couple of years ago, after really immersing myself in the literature, that I learned just how complicated and dense these things really are that only about 9% of recycled plastic actually gets recycled. That the Haber-Bosch process of industrial farming needed to feed eight billion people depends on fossil fuels to work. That Jevon's paradox dictates that increased energy efficiency always leads to increased energy consumption, negating any gains. That melting ice in the Arctic reduces the Earth's albedo and its ability to reflect heat back into space, that solar panels and wind turbines and electric car batteries all require energy-intensive mining of earth metals, that there may not be enough metals in the ground to replace our infrastructure at scale, that you still need to burn diesel to mine those metals and ship the parts, that burning fossil fuels while heating up the planet also produces aerosols that block sunlight and keep it from heating even faster that everything feels like a catch-22. I admit that I may well be out of my depth here. To paraphrase Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, damn it, Jim, I'm a preacher, not a climate scientist. (laughs) And while anthropocentric climate change is pretty certain, the exact science of all the things I just talked about is debatable. And none of it means that progress can't be made or that we shouldn't try. But for me, the solastalgia is real. I feel like every step in the right direction comes with significant trade-offs, two steps forward, one or two steps back. This journey of slowly dawning awareness that began when I was six years old has led me here in 2023, lying awake at night, worried that the future looks more like Mad Max than Star Trek. Wondering if my kids will, indeed, live long and prosper. That's my story, but it's not yours. You have your own tale to tell. You were born during the Second World War, and you've seen society fall on hard times before. And you know we can persevere. You're a parent with young kids who are starting to ask questions about the future that you don't feel equipped to answer. You're a scientist, immersed in the data, and you're deeply troubled, but you believe that technology and human ingenuity can still turn things around. You're a high school student, wondering if you still go to college. You're an activist, writing letters and marching for climate justice. You don't know if it'll help, but you know that it would be unconscionable not to try. You're recently married, and you're wondering if you should bring children into a world that feels like it's spun off of its axis. You're a gardener, your hands at home in the soil, trusting in the wisdom of the seasons. And you know that what dies will be born anew in time. You're a Christian. And you know that Jesus taught us the same thing. These experiences, these feelings are all entirely legitimate. As a pastor, one of the things that I have learned from first-hand experience is that each of us grieves differently in our own way and in our own time. Some of us get angry, others despair, while still others cling to denial. Kubler-Ross, Five Stages of Grief, while not always definitive, are instructive. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I think that anyone who is paying attention is to an extent grieving, but we are not all at the same stage in the process. And that's okay. Friends, the world is changing, that much is certain and it may be changing faster than anyone anticipated. We each have to grieve that change in our own way and in our own time. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that we can't stay in the past lost in nostalgia forever. We have to look around us now with clear eyes, with all the courage it takes to do so. We have to experience the soul nostalgia, grieve, and prepare for more change and move on as best as we can. After Jerusalem fell, it was rebuilt. It still stands today. So friends, trust the seasons, even when the weather is unpredictable. Plant the next crop, even if the harvest is uncertain. And remember that what dies may yet be resurrected in God's time, if not in ours. Amen.